Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests with tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. episode we go Greek island hopping on a gullet boat and discover some of the freshest seafood in Europe. One of the main guys who's part of the family is called Uncle Manolis and he owns a fishing boat as well so the seafood that you're eating at the taverna he is actually going out in the morning to catch it. It is the freshest possible seafood you're going to get and it's like a ocean to table. Yeah well, <laughs> yeah okay. Why not? Yeah. Ocean to table because they're catching it they're bringing it in they're cooking it they're serving it. We chat with our boat's captain, also a trained chef, about how to cook the best lamb. Lamb is very hard to cook. If you don't know how to tender it, then nobody will get any pleasure. It needs preparation. You have to have good relation with the shepherd. You go to shepherd, you get the good lamb, then you prepare it, and when it's still fresh, you tender it, and you can give it, and you can see the smile on your guests that they are really enjoying it. Plus, beyond the food, we reflect on how island hopping is one of the best vacation experiences we've ever had. How stunning every single bay they took us to was. Crystal blue water. Incredible scenery that you just will never forget. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yep. Seeing the bottom of the water and the colours changing and the sunsets sitting on the boat in the water at the end of the day. Well, we also quite often just slept up on deck and you could lay up there and just watch the stars. Okay, welcome to another episode of The Dish. And this one's a little bit different because we're not specifically just talking about a what to eat in. We're talking about a what to eat where because we've just come back from lots of Greek islands. Yes. Island hopping around Greece has been one of our absolute must-do bucket list items. And we are so happy that we got the opportunity to do it this year. Traveling from Kos to Samos. Yes. So Greece has lots and lots of islands. It's actually estimated to be somewhere between 1,200 and 6,000 different islands, if you include all of the tiny islets as well. But only about 230 of these islands are really inhabited. Yeah, I mean, most of them you don't want to live on. No, it's just a rock with a goat. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty much. So, um, you know, we went to some of the inhabited ones. We went past some of the less inhabited ones. And there's lots of places to go island hopping in Greece with that many islands going on, of course. But we chose to take a seven-day voyage with sunfunyou.com around the Dodecanese Islands, which includes islands like Rose, Kos, and Kalimnos, although we didn't actually visit Rhodes on this trip, but it is part of the island chain. So just so that you know roughly where we're talking about. Yeah, I think most people would recognize Rhodes above a few of the other destinations that we went to. Yeah, and we also visited Samos, as Meg mentioned, which is just north of the Dodecanese. It's actually one of the first islands that's part of the North Aegean chain rather than the Dodecanese chain. So all of these islands are located just off the Turkish coastline. So in fact, we could actually see Turkey. Most of the points where we were going along, we could see it from the boat. Yeah, I didn't actually know that they were so close to each other. But yeah, crazy close. Could have still used my Turkish SIM card there. Yeah. Uh, So this voyage, we really loved it. It's actually probably become one of our favorite ever vacation experiences pretty much instantly. I don't know if we can actually put into words how freaking amazing this trip was. We were super excited to go on it. It was 
And because we just thought the whole concept of it, because it's this idea of being active and healthy and relaxing and hiking and yoga and everything, but also with a really good mix of quality food and quality drinking. Yeah. And lots <laughs> of fun people to hang out with, uh, but a small group. So, I mean, it started off with, I think, 12 of us. Two people had to leave halfway through, but yeah, it was 10 they or had 12 to work. people. That's, that's why they had to leave. They had work commitments that they had to rush, rush off to. We were very sad to see them go. Yeah. So, it was a hell of a lot of fun. And of course, you're going to learn about that in this episode. And you're also going to find out what sort of food we're eating when we are visiting the islands and what sort of crazy food the captain was cooking up on the ship. We'll be talking about him in depth a bit later on. Captain Cool. He was cool. He was super cool. All the girls loved him and all the boys wanted to be him. But first, let's do some quick history on the region and some of the historic influences that have affected the cuisine. So, the islands... Those Dodecanese islands were mostly Greek throughout antiquity, uh, with various people, of course, battling over them, as is the way in, in these regions in Europe. There's always been someone trying to take your land. Rhodes actually signed a treaty with the Romans in 164 BC, so they sort of became a bit Roman, but they were actually autonomous under the wing of Rome, so they still remained very much Greek. And the island of Kos, which is where our voyage started, is famous because it is the home of Hippocrates, or was, he's dead now. And you might <laughs> know him cryogenically kept. Like, you can go visit his head if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Not. You might know him from such famous things as the Hippocratic Oath in medicine. So, you've probably heard of him. When the Roman Empire split from east and west, it formed the Byzantine Empire in the east, and the Dodecanese Islands became part of that. Then the Venetians turned up and the Genoese from Genoa also turned up and they both sort of fought over that area for a while. Eventually, the Knights of St. John turned up. There's oh all these different God. people. Everyone gets invaded all the time. 14th century, they turned up. They took Rhodes and most of the other Dodecanese islands and it became a really important strategic point for them for a little bit. Then the Ottoman Empire turned up. 1522, they went, we'll have these. Thank you. That's what they do. Um, but it was actually quite surprising. Most of the islands were still sort of Greek autonomous during that period. So although they were being ruled over by the Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans didn't even really send people to live there. Well, Only I Rhodes mean, and Koz had Turkish honestly, uh, settlements. trying to rule over 6,000 islands... <laughs> You know, keeping them all in check, plus also their own empire, because the Ottoman Empire wasn't tiny. They were probably like, you do what you do. Send us some money. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. pretty much exactly what happened. So, uh, those Greek islands paid some tribute to them, and the Turks just went, yeah, sure, whatever. All right, we can't be bothered to try and manage this many islands be and small good. settlements. Yeah. Someone came on, on shore and shook their finger and went, be good. I'm and that's- going now. <laughs> if I have to come back here, there's going to be a war. <laughs> so be good. Send me some money. And that's pretty much what happened, yeah. apparently. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. And then, believe it or not, and I didn't, I didn't know this when I was researching, the other stuff seems sort of obvious, but actually in 1912, Italy were at war with Turkey and they took the Greek Dodecanese islands off Turkey. Oh. And they went, we're having them. Oh, I never knew they had Italy no. here. And so Italy actually held those islands, or most of them, until after the Second World War, where they finally signed some treaties with Greece and went, no worries, you can have them back. We stole them from you. We get it. Oh. And that was in 1947. So since 1947, they have been Greek again. So they've always sort of been Greek. It's all this time. they've all, Greek people have just lived there. They got on with their stuff. They've done fishing. They've made some great food and, and had babies and all the usual stuff that people do in history. But they've been sort of autonomous against all of these other ruling forces that have been trying to 
tell them what to do. Yeah, so you're going to find some really interesting food in this region that is quite pure, I guess. Uh, I think there's a, there is definitely a lot of Turkish influence in the region, but they, I guess they really held on to a lot of their Greek traditions. It's a mix of both. I think that's what we should learn from this, as they've been influenced by all these people, but they've also retained their ancient cuisine to some extent that's been updated over the years, of course. So yeah, and also from Egypt, although Egypt didn't rule the islands, uh, they were trading with them a lot and other parts of North Africa. So foods were coming from that area. Um, actually, Dodecanese cooking, th- that specific island chain, which is just like 12 or so main inhabited islands in that region, they have very different food from some of the other islands. It's said that they have more spices on the menu because of this Eastern influence that has come from Turkey, etc. And so you expect to find a bit more black pepper, cumin, cinnamon, and of course these days, chili has come across the ocean and has found its way onto the table as well. So yeah, the Ottoman Empire brought those spices, a spice trade from the Byzantine era and the Knights of St. John also coming through that region. All really quite important. It's all left its mark on the cuisine. But of course, yeah, the thing to remember is the Greek culture was there before any of these other cultures took them over. So although this cuisine has affected their local cuisine, they have also in turn affected the cuisine around them. Greek cuisine has gone all over the place and affected the way people cook. I think that's something you really find with this sort of region into Turkey and even into like areas even reaching as far as Armenia and Romania and a lot of those sort of places. You will just see this influence that is a little bit of everything. And of course, the sea has provided a major livelihood for thousands of years until the sudden arrival of tourism recently, which has changed things a bit. But until that, people much were just doing fish based stuff. And doing sea-based stuff. And why wouldn't you? The seafood is amazing. Yeah. So, of course, that affects the diet a lot. We're going to talk about seafood as we go along because there's loads of seafood, as well as, of course, there were trade routes coming from Egypt and North Africa, as I mentioned. And the islands of Kalimnos, Simi, and Halki uh, are particularly affected by uh, the need to take their food from the sea because they actually really lack many spots to grow stuff. They are not got good arable land. So they might have some goats wandering around, but they're not growing lots of fruit and veg. So why did they settle there? It does my head in where they're like, this looks like a good spot. Oh, we can't grow anything. Well, I already built a house. Yeah, but then again, as we saw, the only islands that the Turkish took and, and everything, they were pretty much the ones that were the good ones. Well, I don't mean good ones. That's a bit rude. I mean, the ones that had more opportunities. Yes. They're taking cars and roads because they had a big wine production, that sort of thing. Bigger islands, more going on. These are the islands that are just like, eh, whatever. Do your own thing. There's no point in us even taking this. But yeah, even today, the sea still remains quite important. Some of those smaller islands like Kalimnos and Simi because they actually collect sponge, natural sponge from the ocean. And it's one of their major oh, trades still today. bonkers. That's absolutely bonkers. Have you heard about how they do the diving? down there they no. don't they're not like jumping down there with full-on scuba gear or anything like that it's they're pretty much going down with like a hose in their mouth Jeez. and it's got to the point that they're finding the sponges i think they said they're as low as like 40 to 60 meters down so what? this particular trade they make a lot of money and they've they're heralded as like they're heroes the guys who are you know and it's like family upon family like passed down like you know we are sponge divers but it's a very very dangerous occupation that is still done the same way today i don't know if they put any i haven't heard that they put any extra things in place to make it more safe to harvest the sponge but when you see a sponge there don't think oh you know i've got plenty in my bathroom that i picked up at ikea have some appreciation that these guys are really putting their lives at risk to uh, collect these very special sponge. It's crazy. 
So that's sort of the main part of the history. We got the Ottoman Turkish influence on the food, original Greek influence that has been retained, bit of North African influence through trade, and of course Italian influence because they actually owned the islands for like 40 years, which is crazy. Bonkers. In modern times. Let's talk about some local produce because, of course, that is also going to affect what you get on the table. Very, very important when it comes to Greek cuisine. All right. So I think it's time for a lightning round because some of these are probably going to be things you've already heard of. In fact, most of them are, but they are things that define the cuisine. So let's do a lightning round. We have to start with olives. Olives and, of course, the byproduct of that, olive oil. So we were in uh, Crete a couple of years ago and we discovered that people on the island of Crete drink about or consume about 50 litres of olive oil per year. Uh, Per person. Per person. Insane. I don't know how that varies between the different islands, but it is a very important product in Greece. Yeah. And of course, there's plenty of olive oil going on in some of the major islands of the Dodecanese as well. All right. Next up, seafood. Of course, obvious one. Lots of seafood. Something you should be looking out for. Things like octopus, squid, cuttlefish, lobster when it's in season for sure. And of course, lots of different fish as well. Bulgur wheat. Now, this was something that I really enjoyed in this region. They use it a lot on the islands and can actually be traced back to at least 500 BC. So this has been a really important food product for them for a really long time. And it's delish. Chickpeas. Now, of course, you probably associate chickpeas with things like hummus, maybe lots of Middle Eastern dishes. But actually, in this part of Greece, they are definitely an essential product for many different reasons. Trade over a long period of time has put chickpeas as an important product you've got to look out for in a lot of dishes. Honey or meal, that they'll call it in this region. And this is really important. They will have hives in the countryside and all of the local herbs that they have growing. So you'll have stuff like thyme and oregano and also sage. It actually gets infused in the honey and makes it so spectacular. Mm, Yeah, lots of honey on lots of dishes. Sesame seeds and sesame paste, also known as tahini, may have originally reached the islands because of trade with North Africa or possibly through Turkey. But uh, it's actually sesame are native to the Indian subcontinent, so the internet tells me. I had no idea. Because you don't see as much sesame there as you do in the Middle East, but it moves through the Middle East towards Egypt from there. Goat and lamb uh, is very popular. As we just said, you will see them roaming the countryside. There are goats that are wild, but they also have ones that are tended to by goat herders and lamb herders, and you'll hear the ding, 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 ding. I don't even do the ding very well. <laughs> You're not a goat. You don't need to ding. No, we had a <laughs> You'll get plenty of that. This is a very dry, rocky landscape, so feel free to sit back and watch a goat climb a cliff. They're insane. Yeah, it's the perfect landscape for that sort of meat products. Cows, they don't have these big green fields for them to graze in, so you're going to be getting goat and lamb. Next up, wine, of course. Wine, not only for drinking, but also used in food sometimes. Wine production has been an essential trading element since the vine was first cultivated in the Dodecanese area, somewhere around 3000 to 2000 BC. So Rhodes, Cos and Samos are actually pretty large producers and have been for a long time. But Rhodes is probably the most ancient exporter, so archaeologists believe at the moment. There's actually been quite a lot of evidence of sunken wine trading ships found under the Mediterranean Sea around that area, which have been stacked to the rafters with pottery. Very close to Rhodes. Uh, Some of the pottery is still sealed and contains residues of the original wine. That'd be some fun scuba diving. Yeah. I wonder if you can do that. Next, cheese. Of course, cheese. As we just mentioned before, they don't have a lot of cattle, so you're going to be getting mostly goat and sheep's cheese from this region. I'm all right with that. I am fine with that. 
And of course, fresh fruit and veg when they're in season on the islands that can actually grow that sort of stuff easily. Things like tomatoes that are more recent coming from the Americas, but also traditional foods like figs, pomegranates, grapes, and, you know, all your regular stuff, cucumbers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They all grow nicely in that hot climate. So that's the lightning round. You've probably heard of almost every product on that list. Of course, it's all pretty basic standard stuff, but it's good to know that that's forming the basis of some of the cuisine here. So let's talk about some of the important dishes. Now, I think one of the quintessential, most important experiences of coming to Greece is to have a taverna experience. Oh, absolutely. A Greek tavern where they make lots of delicious food, local traditional food, and you'll get wines, you'll get ouzo, which we'll talk about later. It's quite often run by families, so it's a very big family affair. Of course, on the islands, you're going to find a lot of more seafood tavernas rather than just regular tavernas, where you're going to find lots of fresh seafood. And we found a little place on Samos that was just fantastic, fully traditional, family-owned, and really, really awesome. So let's talk about this seafood taverna. Now, it's called Taverna Maritza in Samos and specializes in fresh fish. And it has this atmospheric taverna experience that really immerses you in the local culture. And as you sit there, they've got this two-tiered courtyard under leafy trees. And the trees are rustling with the cool breeze above you. And you can smell things like red mullet and shrimp sizzling on the barbecue. Yeah, they have an outdoor grill. So as you actually walk past the restaurant and like to walk in the front door, you pretty much have to walk past the kitchen. And you just see it there and you're like, oh, I want to eat all of you. There's always something good grilling there. One of the main guys who's part of the family is called Uncle Manolis, and he owns a fishing boat as well. So the seafood that you're eating at the Taverna, he is actually going out in the morning to catch it. So it is the freshest possible seafood you're going to get. And it's like an ocean to table. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Why not? Yeah. Ocean to table because they're catching it. They're bringing it in. They're cooking it. They're serving it. Like the guys who are the waiters, we met one of the guys, big, big Greek guy, bald head, sort of like late 40s, early 50s. Full of personality. Yeah. He, uh, he was giving me a bit of a, bit of a run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can expect a little bit of a- uh, They like to joke with you. Yeah. Especially if you're a tourist. It's they all like good to mess with you. It's fun. That's what <laughs> makes it the family experience. You know, they you know give you a bit of crap and you give it a bit- back and it's all light-hearted good fun so yeah some of the families out fishing some of the families waiting tables and chatting with the customers and some of the families cooking up the food which is pretty amazing and this taverna is just a few minutes walk from the waterfront and the waterfront itself is Get really away touristy from the waterfront like, it's horrible yeah, it's all right for a drink because it's got a nice view and it's in the harbor but the waterfront in samos although it's pretty is just full of tourist restaurants, which are a little bit hit and miss on the quality. So this place, you only take a few minutes walk out away from the coastline and you are escaping those inflated prices because it's like double the price to eat and drink on the waterfront. And you're escaping all the crazy tourism to eat at a really authentic taverna that opened in 1991. And actually, uh, Uncle Manolis says it's because his family, like his parents and grandparents, he wanted to maintain the traditions that they had taught him as a child. Which is amazing. So he's like, although they didn't open until 1991, they opened with this goal 
of maintaining his parents' and grandparents' traditions. So he's taken a home-cooked atmosphere, a home family atmosphere, and just turned it into a bigger experience for everyone to enjoy. Exactly. And it's awesome, and the food was fantastic. And you can't say only 1991 anymore because, Tomo, we are old, and that was like <laughs> ages ago. Oh, jeez. That's not fair, is it? <laughs> So, some locally caught seafood specialities that you should try. You don't have to go to Taverna Moritza, although we highly recommend it. There's lots of other seafood tavernas around the, the islands. But some stuff you should look out for on menus that's definitely worth a go. Giant shrimp or mussels saganaki. Oh, I love that dish. Now, the word saganaki refers to the pan that is used to cook the food. It's a heavy steel or iron pan. It's like a fried dish, but not deep fried. You'll see it on menus. It'll say Saganaki cheese. That is a cheese fried in a Saganaki pan. A mussel Saganaki is a mussels dish fried in the same type of pan with a tomato sauce and feta, some onions and a few herbs and spices. And it's wonderful. I mean, obviously you get mussels cooked, maybe steamed with white wine and garlic in France and things like that. I mean, it's a classic way, but this version with feta and tomato is not something you see in a lot of other countries. No, and it's amazing. I mean, And I'm the sort of person where I definitely enjoy mussels and clams and stuff, but I'll have one or two and I'm like, okay, that's good. This, I will keep going back for more. It's something about the tomato flavors, the way that it's cooked, the cheese that goes with it. It's just this whole combination. And I'm, I'm dipping my bread in at the end and eating it all up. There's nothing left by the time we're done with that plate. Yeah, rich sauce. Having that feta melted into the tomato. Oh, it's amazing. Brilliant. Uh, so another dish to look out for, especially at Taverna Maritza, they have a squid stuffed with feta cheese and peppers. Oh, why did we not order that? I mean, you can't order everything, but like this is seriously one of their top dishes. Most people listening to this might have tried squid stuffed with rice. That's a pretty typical dish around the world, but squid stuffed with feta and um, sweet peppers, like bell peppers. Oh my goodness. Nice. Also, try out the deep fried cuttlefish, of course. Uh, slightly different from having a deep fried calamari and uh, maybe a little bit softer. Very highly recommended by a friend of ours who went there and ate after we had left Samos and she highly recommends the cuttlefish. She said it was fantastic. A popular fish you're going to find in the region that's like a smaller, more affordable fish is the red mullet. Very popular in the Mediterranean region around here. Grilled or on the barbecue, sometimes deep fried and battered, but I think grilled on the barbecue is a little bit better. So look out for red mullet, nice, soft, sweet tasting flesh. And of course, if it's super fresh, which it should be at Taverna Maritza, it's not going to be too seafoody. It's just going to be awesome. Swordfish also available around here. So if you haven't had swordfish before, that is popular. I do like a swordfish every now and then. It's, uh, if you haven't had swordfish at all, which I know some people won't have done, uh, it's a very, very meaty fish. It's almost like having a pork steak, but with a hint of fish. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of fish for the reason I find that it can taste too fishy. So the, the two things are covered by this restaurant. It's like swordfish is not a very fishy tasting fish. And two, this taverna just like serves such fresh fish. It, it, it certainly is not an issue at all. And another thing to look out for in the region, not necessarily at, at the tavernas, is a, a small fried shrimp dish with chili flakes, often served as a street food. It's a speciality on the island of Simi. So if you are hopping around the Dodecanese and you get to go to the island of Simi, then you can try this one out as well. But you might find it in some restaurants, so do look out for it. Okay, now we talked about seafood because that's probably your number one thing. You're going to need to eat seafood. Absolutely. And seafood mixed with feta cheese apparently is the, is the way to go. Very cool. But speaking of cheese, 
you got some stuff about some local cheeses, right? So what what are the local cheeses people need to try? Okay, so there is a particular cheese that is famous from the island of Koz. And this one, it's called Posa cheese. It's also called Krasotiriko as well. So it does have, it's a bit confusing having that name. But Krasi is actually Greek for the word wine. Uh, and, and we're probably pronouncing it wrong, right? Oh, I'm sure I am. Yeah. It's probably Krasi. Krasi. Who knows? Am I sounding more Italian? I don't know. So the way that this cheese is unique is because they take the goat's cheese and they submerge it in the Krasi, which is uh, also, it's sort of like the dregs of the red wine. Oh, it's like the leftover stuff from the winemaking process. Exactly. Nice. So the rumor, whether or not you believe in the legend, it has it that in ancient times when Coz had a shortage of olive oil, which was usually used to preserve the cheese, the residents turned to this sort of crassi possia, which is the, the dregs of the wine, to mature the cheese instead. Mm. And they added sheep's or goat's milk, and and that's what they used. And now it is quite popular uh, because it actually gives it this bronze coloring around the outside, and it really does stand out. Like if you see it on the island, and there's a couple of other islands that do it as well, but it's very, very popular for Cos. And you can see this bronzed colored cheese because it's been sat in wine. Interesting. Exactly. So apparently this cheese is very popular to have with pretty much everything from salad to fruit to just having it with your Greek coffee. Can I have it with wine? Wine cheese with wine? I'm pretty certain you could have wine cheese with wine if you wanted to. Good. They also say it tastes fantastic with watermelon in the summer. Ah. All right. We didn't try it with watermelon, but uh, next time, next time we'll try it with watermelon. Yeah. See what happens. All right. From cheese to meat. Because of course- we said there's lamb and goat going on and uh, finding a lamb that is stuffed with rice or a goat that is stuffed with rice are so that's sort of like a, a festive dish. So one of these is called muori, which is lamb stuffed with rice, specifically from the island of Kalimnos, although I'm sure you can get it pretty much everywhere. Yeah. But it's one of their original specialities. And kapamas, which is an Easter dish from Rhodes, which is a whole baby goat stuffed with rice. Holy dooly. So, you know, obviously, stuffing meat or vegetables with rice, did it come from the islands? We've got no idea where it originally came from. We might be talking about that a bit more later. It's yeah. complicated. But these are two dishes that they do stuff, that you can look out for. Stuff, stuff, in stuff. Stuff, stuff, in stuff. Is uh, very complicated to knuckle down where that came from. And Greece does lamb and goat so well. I, they also do stuff, stuff, and stuff very well, too. They, they do stuff, yeah. stuff, and stuff. It's important. All right. Now, for the vegetarians, I think we've got something, because we, we mentioned about chickpeas being an important ingredient earlier, and there's a special chickpea dish that is popular on the islands. It is. They have, like, chickpea patties, which is kind of like your falafel that you would get in the Middle East. Now, I am going to completely obliterate this word. It has <laughs> one, two, three, four, six, seven. Too many words. Too many letters. 15 letters. letters. It has 15 letters. It's revithokefteris. I'm going to guess and probably also get it wrong. Revithokefteris. I think the second part of the word, it looks a bit like kofta. So I think it's like, because it's a ball, right? It's like a minced ball of chickpeas. So I'm guessing the first part of the word is chickpeas and the second part is kofta. So like chickpea kofta. But in Greek. 
I reckon it's something like that. That's I mean, what, what did you, you find with? out about it? Um, so this is actually a traditional dish that you're really going to find in pretty much every restaurant or cafe, specifically in Samos. Very popular in Samos, but you will also find it in, in other areas because it's, it's chickpeas, isn't it? This will be offered as a meze. So like a small plate. It's like it's the, like your tapas. Yeah, it's like tapas, but Greek tapas. Exactly. So as always is the case with many beloved recipes, every single place you have it <laughs> is going to say they do it the best or their mama does it the best. And every single place is going to do it completely differently because it really comes down to what spices you choose to mix in with the chickpeas. So absolute basic ingredients you're looking at is just chickpeas, probably a little bit of flour to make the ball, help it all stick together. Onions, dill, mint, water, salt, black pepper. That's going to be a basic. I saw some recipes that had potato in it. I saw some recipes that had different things in it. It's all going to be different and everyone says they do it the best. And So it's difficult, difficult yeah. to discern. Um, but if you're looking at the original history of chickpea patties or falafel, they've actually been around for over a thousand years. So it's a really popular dish. And, and as you mentioned with that trade route coming from Egypt – uh, with all the spices and stuff like that, it is actually said that it perhaps was invented in Egypt as a meat substitute during Lent. Mm. Yes. And so from that, it became really popular. And then the dish was exported from Alexandria to many destinations, thus hitting places like Rhodes, moving on to Samos and some of the other destinations around there. And uh, if you're interested, moving a little bit more into falafel. Sure. Uh, in 2012... One of the hotels in Jordan produced the world's largest falafel that was 75 kilograms. Damn. That's one big chickpea patty. That's almost as heavy as I am. There you go. You're just a giant falafel. I like to think of myself as more than just a giant falafel. You could think of yourself as a giant is. I can't think of myself as that. If I can't pronounce it, I can't think about it. I'll stick with chickpea patty. <laughs> but it's a fantastic little snack and is very popular to have with ouzo. As everything should be uh-huh. in Greece. And I like it with a little bit of tatsiki. Oh, of course, of course. I'm sure most people listening already know what tatsiki is, but the famous Greek yogurt dip mixed with cucumber. I mean, I say Greek. It's a Greek word for sure. Um, but I'm sure other people in the region claim it's theirs as well, because that seems to be the argument that goes on. Everyone claims the food is theirs when it's not. But tatsiki, definitely, that's a... That sounds like a Greek word to me. That's yep. not a Turkish word. Um, so, yeah. Now, let's uh, reel off just a few other foods you should try in Greece that um, we particularly like. These aren't specifically from the islands, but you will find them on the islands because, of course, these days there's tourists everywhere and they import everything from everywhere. So you can get lots of dishes that aren't specifically local. But here's a few good ones to try. Just the lamb chops. Greece grills meat really well and they make great lamb on the island. So if you're having local lamb chops... They're going to be juicy and they're going to be delicious. And they're literally just roaming the land. So it's very organic, very healthy, very, you know, straight from the source right there to your face. Tasty stuff. Souvlaki, of course. You probably heard of souvlaki, but it's the, it's the equivalent of skewered meats. Greek's version of that. Very yum yum. Moussaka. Oh, I love moussaka. Which the Turkish claim is being theirs because the word is basically a Turkish word. It well, seems. so does the Bulgarians. Moussaka. The Bulgarians do too. So, yeah, uh, we're going to have to do, do an, an episode. episode on moussaka 
at some point because this is going to be an interesting story, but we can't cover it all here. And Meg's favorite, Saganaki cheese. Oh, I love Saganaki cheese. We mentioned that already. It's the pan fried cheese fried in Saganaki. It's a salty yellow cheese. Often uh, they use keflatori, which is a Greek cheese, but they do use other cheeses as well. It doesn't melt. Really it good. just softens. Soft and on the inside, crispy on the outside. It's amazing. So fantastic. Another one of our favorite dishes, Bugiurdi. Pronounce that wrong for sure. It's baked feta with peppers, tomato, and onions, and oregano, and olive oil, and lemon juice. And it's just baked in the oven. Phenomenal. It's a great way to have feta. If you never thought about having feta hot because you're used to having it on a salad, you should have baked feta. It's fantastic. Change your world. Another one that is amazing. Deep fried feta wrapped in phyllo pastry topped with sesame seeds and drizzled with honey. I'm drooling. We are totally going to get that tomorrow because we're in Athens recording this. We just finished our trip and we're back in Athens and we are going to go eat that tomorrow because it's yeah. amazing. We're just going to go cheese crazy. And some more seafood options. Uh, tarama salata, which you've probably heard of. It's oh, a that's fish very popular. Yep. Super popular. You'll see it on most menus. It's a little starter dip made from fish eggs that you can dip your bread in. It's a, it's a nice little start. Coming up in the rest of this episode... We discuss the highlights of Greek island hopping in the Aegean, from hidden coves to quaint Greek waterfront villages, swimming in crystal blue water straight off the boat and sleeping under the stars, as well as our captain's sensational cuisine. Plus, Uzo versus Raki. What should you be drinking? Now let's talk about our actual voyage, because of course that is the food you can eat on the islands, but we ate a lot of food on the yacht. We did. We actually were very, very spoilt because the captain of the vessel actually is culinary trained. Not only did he build the boat with his own bare hands. <laughs> That's insane. But he also went to culinary school and I think he's also worked in a couple of five-star hotel restaurants in order to work on his craft and make sure that he serves the best possible food on his gullet. Yeah, in incredible food. We'll be getting into the exact dishes later on, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the actual cruise experience itself because it's not a cruise. It's a, it's voyage. a voyage. Because, well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it for you. We're going to hand you over to uh, Cynthia, who manages sunfunyou.com. Uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about exactly what the experience is that you're going to have if you take a trip with her. And it really was phenomenal. Tell us the concept behind Sun Fun You cruising in the Greek islands and Turkish islands. The philosophy behind the travel that we do for Sun Fun You has a lot to do with trying to figure out what the best week-long experience for our guests would be, which is balancing active, authentic vacations with a whole lot of fun. And that's really just what we try to bring to every moment that we can in the voyages, not cruises. Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> it's not a cruise. It's a voyage. Isn't I can it? say which that again. I know, but we have connotations about cruising and even the food, which we think is like a critical part of what we offer. It's not an all you can eat, indulge till you're going to explode. It's really food cooked with love in a tiny little galley by a captain that knows each and every guest by name. It's, it's a whole different experience than what you take away from a cruise. That's why I care about the word voyage. What do you think is the main thing that, well, one that you want your guests to get out of the cruise, but I mean, you've done this for a couple of years now, for six years now, what is the main thing that your guests have, have told you that they really get out of doing this voyage? I think the number one takeaway our guests have is that they, almost to a person, they leave 
with something extra that's been added to their life. So it's it's not just an experience where you come to forget what's going on back home, but you have enough time here to reflect. You've pushed your body a little bit. You've met new people. You've um, experienced new culture. And people have enough downtime in between all of that to internalize what it means to them. And they actually go home an enriched person instead of just using this as an escape from reality. I think that's the number one takeaway that I try to make sure all our guests have. I think that's really fantastic because we've spent time in Indonesia and we spent time in different places where, you know, sort of wellness things. And it's like you go to some place, oh, India as well. You, you go to some place and it's like, I'm just not going to talk for 10 days where, yes, you can do that if that is your choice. But here, I think after just experiencing the whole week being on here, it's about talking. It's about interacting. It's about laughing, but also having still the time for yourself to process everything that you might need to be processing back home. I felt like it's the whole package of life without the work part. <laughs> this trip, it, it really felt like leading a perfectly balanced life, but without the stress of modern living and work. That's sort of how it came across to me. You've got swimming and exercise every day, really good wholesome food that's well-made, so you are just gloriously happy with your taste buds and your belly. The breeze, the sun and the waves, and even though it was a group of strangers brought together, it felt like a travel family just pretty much from the first day. They really try hard to get everyone together and make everyone feel part of the group. Exactly. And I think we were particularly lucky that we had such a fantastic group. But I think they have lots of really fantastic groups on there because it's just a lot of like-minded people that generally are looking for the same sort of thing, looking for a little bit of life balance or just, I don't know, get their head clear and get themselves together again before they go back and face the world. And I definitely found that so much stress was just instantly gone with just simple things like taking extra time to read or allowing myself to have a nap or, you know, to go for a swim and or just, you know, see amazing views on these incredible hikes that they would take us on. It It's so hard to put into words exactly how special this experience was, but it is Absolutely one of the best things we've ever done. And I just want to keep doing it again and again and again. Yeah. And what was surprising and definitely what Cindy was trying to get across in that clip was unlike a cruise and unlike a all-inclusive resort where you're basically there to just indulge, overindulge, lie by a pool and then eat again and then drink again. The complete level of balance that we had between exercise, fun, interaction with other people. I mean, even at all-inclusive resorts, you don't always get interaction with other people. You may chat with someone, but you might not make friends. Yeah. Whereas here, we were always pulled together as a group, and we were always given an opportunity to, uh, to create friendships, to have fun. And we're going to be talking about some of the activities we did later in this podcast. But we left the voyage feeling completely re-energized. Yeah, we were active and we ate. We didn't feel like we got fat, but we felt like we ate whatever we wanted and it was great. I definitely feel like I ate whatever I wanted. And yet I feel like I walked off there and actually lost a little bit of weight. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, let's talk about the captain and the captain's food, because as we said, he's a bit of a legend. Atikan. Yeah, Captain Atikan. Now, we had a quick catch up with him, a little bit of an interview. He doesn't speak lots of English, but he did his best to convey everything about his history and why he became a ship captain in the first place. Why is it that you built a boat and why, why is this your lifestyle? Why, what? Uh, my grandfather was a captain and my father was also a captain. My uncle and all my relatives, they are in this business. So this is where I was born. When I was 13, I started to work with my uncle. And when I was 17 years old, I was already riding the boat. 
and then I decided to build a boat. Then here I am with my own boat. I think we all agreed by like the end of the voyage or even by day two of the voyage that the captain was sort of an international man of mystery. He probably was a spy in his former life. Yeah, he was like going off and spear fishing in the night. You t- he took off his t- went off with his little torch and in his wetsuit and he went spear fishing, saying he was catching fish. But I think he was conversing with uh, Mister M. Yeah, could be getting his next assignment, and then they would give him some fish to you know help cover help story his, help with his cover exactly. Yes, he did bring back his own spearfished catch. Whether he got it from other spies or whether he actually caught it, we don't know. That we don't know. But he came back on the boat with like fifteen or twenty fish after being out for an hour, and like wow, and that you're would a be legend. lunch the next day. Yeah. Oh, he pan fried the fish and it was amazing. Then another night he went out with a flashlight underwater and caught two octopus, which he turned into a salad the following day. Mm-hmm. And of course, we mentioned earlier in the episode, he built this boat himself. And uh, he also trained as a chef in Vienna, which is insane. And actually, we got a little clip uh, talking to him about training as a chef and about what he about his food loves and about why he is such a great cook. So let's jump into that as well. So my uncle, when he was teaching me how to be a captain, the most important part of being captain is to serve your guest. So he took me to the kitchen and he showed me everything once. How to cook, what to cook, bring whole week. That teaching includes buying stuff for cooking and so on. But it was not enough for me, so I went to learn also cooking in boardroom. I went to a hotel and I learned cooking over there. And also my visit to Vienna, it was wonderful for me. Also over there, uh, I learned also many things about cooking. So first, my uncle, second, hotel, and third one in Vienna, Austria, I learned cooking. So yeah, Vienna, the capital of Austria, if you didn't get that, because... Um The captain's accent is a little strong. The captain is super passionate about food and family. In fact, that's another random fact about him. The honey that we were eating on the trip, he said, actually came from his brother's farm. <laughs> so, like, what? How much more? How many more layers can there be to this guy? It's well, and just also, crazy. Uh, Mamet, who was one of the cabin hands helping out around the deck, was his nephew. So it's all very much in the family. Yeah, it's crazy. And the captain did cook for us a lot. So although we ate at some tavernas offshore and did some other things, we did eat a lot on the boat and it was just fantastic food. I mentioned the octopus and the fried fish um, that he caught underwater himself. But there was one other speciality that I just... The chicken? Is it the chicken? Are you talking about the chicken? I haven't mentioned the chicken yet. Oh, okay. It, well, the chicken was great. We'll talk about the chicken maybe after this. But there was one... One other speciality that Meg didn't love as much as me because it's not her thing, but I absolutely fell in love with this dish. So let's jump into the interview with the captain on that one. What is your favorite thing to cook? Lamb. Lamb is very hard to cook. You have to know how to tender it. If you don't know how to tender it, then nobody will get any pleasure. Otherwise, you'll, you will feel like you are just chewing gum. That's all. But if you know how to cook lamb, you have to know the person, first of all. It needs preparation. You have to have good relation with the shepherd. You go to shepherd, you get the good lamb, then you prepare it. And when it's still fresh, you tender it and you can give it. And you can see the smile on your guests that they are really enjoying it. That's why they are doing this job. Yeah, as simple as that. Baked lamb and potatoes. But when it's done that well and the meat's falling off the bone and it doesn't taste super lamby, it's it just... 
it's just wow. It and was- there was delicious crispy bits in there. Like, as you said just before, this is not my thing. I'm not a big fan of lamb. There was some good tasty meat there and those potatoes were divine yeah we were pretty much fighting each other for the potatoes all friendship was aside we it's like i will fight you for a potato i mean because obviously when you have pork you get crackling but with this it was like lamb crackling exactly i mean you don't normally get that unless the lamb is cooked to perfection often the skin is softer or whatever or you don't even get i didn't even know you could get lamb crackling but he gave us lamb crackling it's it was amazing. Uh, it tasted lamby, but not a lot, but just the right level and crispy and salty and amazing. And the potatoes had gone crispy in all the fat. I mean, this thing was just full of oil and fat, which I guess came from the meat. Yep. It, it was literally drowned in it, but it didn't feel like it was wrong. It felt like it was so right. Absolutely. And I guess that's probably one thing that we should mention that you won't actually get any pork on this particular vessel. Uh, it is a Turkish boat and everything that you'll eat on board will probably be either lamb, beef, even the sausages beef. And chicken. Turkey, chicken. Turkey, chicken. Uh, so yeah, um, don't expect pork, but you know what? You're not going to miss it. It'll be this interesting thing. Even Tom was like, I don't think I've gone this long without pork my entire life. And I'm okay. Because <laughs> the food was so good. It was amazing. Some other dishes that uh, the captain loves to make, specialities. Eggplant and tomatoes. Oh, that was so good. There's different versions of this. Uh, Saksuka is one of the names for this. This normally refers to the cold version, but he also does a hot version of pretty much the same dish. And just, wow. I mean, who knew that you could make anything just stewed in tomatoes taste that good? Once again, you're grabbing the bread and just dipping it in the leftovers to get more of that flavor because it's so good. And one of the reasons it probably tastes good, uh, the captain's actually shared one of his recipes for this. He puts five glasses of oil for one kilo of eggplant. I mean, eggplants are light, granted. So that's quite a lot of eggplant, but five glasses of oil. He didn't state how much is in a glass, but that (laughs) sounds like a lot of oil, doesn't it? (laughs) Anyway, it's tasty. Another favorite dish of his that he shared a recipe with us for is uh, musfer, which is a zucchini fritter. So, as well as the chickpea fritters, he just does some basic zucchini fritters, which were. Very tasty when you mix them with a bit of garlic yogurt sauce. And he was making his own. So this is the Turkish version of tzatziki, as it were. I think it had a little bit more dill in it. Yeah. Possibly even sometimes he mixed a bit of chili in with it, which to make it very interesting. I thought the mix of the uh, tzatziki-style yogurt with a little bit of chili. Mm, Yep. That was good. It's lots of really simple home cooking style, but he's like elevated it because he's fully trained as a chef. Yeah. And he's just made home cooking at another level. Uh, Something else that Meg loved, the dill and feta pastries. He made his own pastries. He did a lot of cooking with dill. And I don't know what it is this summer. I am 100% addicted to dill. So anything he made with dill in it, I was devouring. I think what's super incredible, the most insanely amazing thing to mention about this whole experience with the captain's cooking, he was cooking in a galley that had three little gas hobs and one very small oven. And the galley was tiny. Yeah, it's not some big kitchen. It was tiny. I think our bedroom was bigger than his galley. Our bedroom was like four times bigger than the galley. Yeah. So I would say his galley, including the cabinets, was the width of a single bed. So it was literally like he was moving up and down the aisle 
yep. half a single bed yep. and then half the other half of the single bed was his cooking surfaces. Exactly. And yeah, he was cooking for 12 people plus the crew, which was like four or five people for the crew. And it was coming out amazing. We got and cakes, hot. we got pastries, we got baked lambs. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, I've got no idea at all. And did it all with a smile. Homemade meatballs, uh, Turkish-style tomato bulgur. So we're talking about bulgur oh, yeah. being an important thing in this region. Well, he was doing the Turkish-style mixed with tomato paste. That was good. Perfect. And as Meg mentioned, there was a chicken dish he did at lunch. There was like a leftovers dish. We'd had chicken on the first night, and two days later, suddenly this other chicken dish turned up, and it would just... He'd minced up all the chicken that had been left over, put it with tomatoes and onions and things, and I've never tasted anything like it. It was heavenly. And of course, one of the best things about having these meals on the boat is the fact that it's all served family style and everyone is sharing together. And that's another reason why everyone got to become so close and got to become friends so quickly was because we were being treated like a family and we were eating as a family. Yeah. And no phones or electronics on the table during dinner time. I think that was mostly because if you spill something, uh, the way that the table is designed, it's so that water doesn't go flowing over the edge, like it holds the water on the table. So um, I think that's more of the thing, but I did like that there was no electronics at the table. Why would you want to use electronics when you're in the middle of the water with all these beautiful views around Exactly. You? It absolutely is not necessary. There are better things to look at than Facebook when you're on a yacht, that's for sure. And also the internet was kind of in and out, so just forget it exists. It's great. It's good for you. But the food and fun didn't stop just at mealtimes. There was actually lots of other food-based activities during the trip, as well as some other crazy fun things. Obviously, for foodies, we love doing cooking classes, and they had a mini cooking class on the boat. It's a little tricky because he's got a galley that is tiny. So we actually did sort of an on-table family cooking class thing where they brought out some of the dishes, and we made our own dolma. Now, Meg's done some research on a little bit of the history of dolma, and if people haven't eaten it before, maybe you can give us a basic roundup of what that's about. Yeah, so pretty much I love dolma in any way, shape, or form. Love, 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 love Dolma. And even, I'm going to start with telling you, there's a legend that says a Turkish imam, who is a person who leads the prayer in the mosque, he enjoyed the flavor of a Dolma one time so much, he fainted out of pleasure. (laughs) Okay, good to know. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a fantastic dish. So, the word Dolma is actually- What is Dolma? It comes from Turkish. It's a Turkish origin uh, from the word Dolmak, and Dolmak means to fill. Or to stuff. And that's pretty much, it's stuff stuffed in stuff. We're back at that again. <laughs> always. We always end up somewhere near <laughs> stuff stuffed in stuff. So, yeah. The word dolma is Turkish from dolmak. The plural in Greek is domades. And this is sometimes used in English. We shorten it to dolmas. And that's where we get those names from. The exact origins are actually unknown. I've read claims from Turkey, from Greek, from Armenia, where they're called tolma there, but it seems like the original actually recorded version goes back to at least possibly about the 17th century, where a chef recorded several varieties, which included stuffed grape leaves, stuffed cabbage leaves, cucumbers, eggplants, apples, and quinces. And these vegetables are all stuffed with a rice filling, which or it can include meat as well. So it's like Different stuffings like meat, sautéed mint, rice with saffron, all different things can go inside. But so the Turkish version is just like generally something stuffed inside something else. So essentially, yeah, the word dolma is pretty generic. It refers to a lot of different things that are stuffed. Pretty much. I think from what I saw, 
I'd have to do a little bit more research, but the original dolma was probably a whole eggplant that was stuffed with onions, garlic, and tomatoes. Mm. And it's just variations of that have gone all over, you know, the Mediterranean and Middle East, and we have very, very many different variations of it. On the yacht, we made stuffed peppers, stuffed with rice, and we also made stuffed vine leaves. And uh, a few of the other guests were from Turkey, and we had one very special guest who everyone called mum because she was the oldest and because she was on there with her daughter. And she was very particular about how you wrap and roll the vine leaves to make dolma. Yes. And she was making them like little tiny cigars, like cigarillos. Very much Turkish very style. Tur- Turkish-Armenian style. They're, yeah, like really tightly wrapped cigar, where in Greece you'll find them to be a little bit fatter. Chunky. Chunky like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you call that. Like a thumb. Yeah, like Chunky a thumb, like a yeah. thumb. Thumb-sized or a little bit bigger. But yeah, she was making these tiny skinny little cigarillos. So yeah, she was very impressed with my uh, dolma making skills, apparently. She gave me a few compliments (laughs) in Turkish. We ended up making some very tasty dolma for lunch. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some photos in the show notes of uh, the dolma we ate because it was delicious. Uh, This is a parental advisory. It is not particularly rude, but if you have young children, you may not want them to listen to this. Or teenagers, perhaps you might prefer them not to listen to this. This section is going to be about two minutes long. Uh, but it's, a, it's not offensive, there's no swear words, but you might prefer them not to listen to it. There is a word that we used that might be seen as offensive, but we didn't do it. All right, now let's talk about something other random, not food-related, but definitely a lot fun. We had a backgammon orgy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you guys came up with that name. We just played a lot of backgammon and swapped a lot of partners. But there was no orgy. Yeah, well, it's the equivalent of a backgammon orgy because we were all playing with each other. We were drinking quite a lot and we couldn't really remember the yeah. night after yeah, we or the day after who we'd played with the night before. Multiple swapping of partners and whatnot. Yeah. I would call that a backgammon orgy. Why not? You could call it a swingers party. Backgammon swingers party? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, it could work. Still, it was a lot of fun. It really brought the group together that we all had this. We had a tournament. We had a backgammon tournament. And by the end of it, we got to the final. Uh, one of the ladies from Germany, she was in the final against one of the other captains. Our ship had two captains uh, from Turkey, Captain Itekin, who we've talked about. It's his ship. And uh, from Greece, Captain K, who was on there because you're sailing in Greek waters. So they had a Greek captain as well to make it a bit easier on the bureaucracy, which kept things nice and smooth, which was great. But yeah, they made it into the final. We had all these different rounds. We were all playing each other to get through the final. And it was a lot of fun. It was loads of fun. I haven't played this much backgammon since I was like 16. It was amazing. Yeah. And it was also something that if you are a beginner... Uh, everyone sort of gently guided you through learning. I mean, Vera had never played before, and she's the one who came through to be playing against the captain in the finals. Yeah, and backgammon is an incredibly popular game in Turkey and Greece, so it was very fun to play the guys from Turkey and, and from Greece who were experts, and you know, we all learned a bit from playing against them as well. So it was pretty awesome. Now, a couple of other things we want to talk about. The beer and calamari party. Oh, hello, because calamari, of course, you're going to get some super fresh seafood. You just say beer and calamari party and you've got pretty much 50% of the world excited. Yeah. Like a lot of people paying attention right now. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, what, what, what? It wasn't so much of a, it was a celebration after a very long hike. The party sounds better than celebration. Yeah. I took the hike. Meg didn't take the hike. It was an optional thing because it was a very hardcore 
Well, a semi-hardcore hike that was about 13 miles, I think, 12 miles in total. And it was over some very rocky terrain. It took us about three and a half, four hours. But, I mean, we got lots of exercise and then we felt great celebrating by eating tons of calamari and fries. And, of course, it's the freshest calamari straight out of the water. Mm-hmm. So the guys from the boat, they drove it around the island whilst we hiked over the island, over the mountain. And then we arrived to this beautiful bay. I mean, all of the bays, we barely even mentioned how stunning every single bay they took us to was. Crystal blue water. Oh, you just have to dive in. Each more beautiful than the last. Yeah, incredible scenery that you just will never forget. And that's why you don't need to look at your phone. Because when you're seeing that stuff, you just can't help but want to jump in rather than look at your phone. It was, yeah. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yep. Seeing the bottom of the water and the colours changing and the sunsets sitting on the boat in the water at the end of the day. Well, we also quite often just slept up on deck because you could lay up on the top deck there and they had, like, cushions, like, big... Big, full-size bed cushions. And you could lay up there and just watch the stars. And the the first night, it was me and two other ladies up there and we were just watching shooting stars and watching... You know, pointing out the different from constellations and stuff like that. And to sleep under that was truly amazing. Yeah, the boat's rocking just a little bit back and forth. And that sort of puts you to sleep. But you're looking up at the stars at the same time. And there's barely any light pollution, of course, because you've sailed away from all the towns. Uh, In this voyage specifically, their whole plan is not to take you to just the big towns. They take you to all these quiet little bays where it might be you and one other boat or maybe no other boats at all. Quite a few times it was just us mm-hmm. in one cove or bay by ourselves and we could just lie there pretty much with silence and the beauty of the stars. That is another life-changing part of this thing. If you've never got to do that in your life, you have to go do that. When was the last time you slept under the stars? Ask yourself that. Quite a few years ago for me, I think. Yeah. has been a while. So yeah, beer and calamari party. Let's not forget that. No, that was an important part. Yep. It's, yeah, it's, it's not really a party, but it's a lot of fun eating some great calamari with views of a beautiful little cove. So fantastic. And finally, because we have gone on about how amazing this is a lot, but just up it to another crazy level. It's not just all about the relaxation and the exercise and the eating. It is also about having a real party. And we had a, Racky and Bingo Pirate Party, which was... <laughs> pirate Bingo! They actually made us put on some little costume bits to dress up as pirates, which was hilarious. We all got fake tattoos. Yes. Little stick-on tattoos and lots of Raki to make the party go with a swing. One of the Turkish girls, it was her birthday that day, so it definitely turned into a full-on party. But, of course, the, the big foodie thing from this was we were drinking lots of Raki. And, of course, there is the Greek version of the very similar spirit called Ouzo, which most people have heard of. And what is the difference? Like, they've obviously competing over these two because w- Turkish are going, it's Raki, and Greeks are going, it's Ouzo. What, what's going on with that? Okay, so essentially... It's all sort of based around sort of Sapporo and sort of like Italian grappa. That's where the original drink came from. And then it's just sort of mixes. So, Raki is actually just sort of a variation on your grappa, which is actually, it's a brandy that's been distilled from the fermented residue of grapes 
after they've been processed for winemaking. So they take all of the the excess skins and everything like that, and then they distill it and they create this brandy, which makes your grappa, your Sapporo, which makes your Raki. What makes it Ouzo is actually the addition of water, aniseed, and other herbs and spices like fennel, cloves, and coriander. But now Raki also tastes like aniseed, so they must be doing that. Like, is there a different types of raki? Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think just over time, flavors and and things have crossed over, and people are like, "Oh, actually, I do enjoy that those sort of spices and flavors." And it's just sort of it's that it comes down to that whole Turkey and Greece have very similar traditions, and they and the things have just blended in a way that that you do get a lot of like sort of similar flavors when it comes down to it. So, Turkish raki, from what I've had, have always had aniseed in, but raki from other parts of the Balkan region have not had aniseed in. So, is it's just a, just a personal preference over what flavors they want to put in the drink? Yeah, I think pretty much in Turkey they just enjoyed the spices, and so that's what they kept in there. In other regions, they wanted it a bit more pure. Of course, we've had raki in some regions where they've mixed it with mountain herbs and stuff like that to change the flavor, like we're in Montenegro. So it really seems to be like a bit of a regional thing and what their personal preference is on the flavors that they mix in with it. So can anyone lay claim to being like, well, we invented this, we invented Uzo and Raki is a ripoff, or is it just no one knows? Well, the Greeks have laid claim to Uzo. They're like, that is ours, that is 100% our thing. Because in 2006, the government ruled that Uzo can only be made in Greece, and it even received an EU-approved protected designation of origin, which is exactly similar to like your Italian wines and their, their DOCs, and- champagnes and stuff like that. So it actually has that label saying Uzo is Greek. This is 100% made here. I don't know particularly about Raki, whether or not anyone's laid 100% claim to that, but Uzo is 100% Greek and they've got that that protected designation of origin. Uzo obviously seems to be a fixed style, whereas Raki seems to be flexible with what you can do with it. Exactly. So, there are some very specific do's and don'ts when it comes to drinking Uzo. Ah, okay. Do not... Put your ouzo in the fridge to chill. Right. Good to know. Do add ice cubes to cool the drink. And also when you add ice cubes, it gives it that cloudy. Well, you add water and ice cubes and it gives it that cloudy and sort of dilutes it. Yeah, that's like magic. How does that even work? I don't exactly know what the specifics on that one are. I might have to research that a little bit further. But there are two different ways of certainly drinking it. You can dilute it with the water, which most people say is a pure way to drink it. Some people like it straight up, but I think the most popular way is ice cubes and water. I think diluted's more fun because it goes milky in the glass, whereas just straight up, it's it's hard. It's a bit rough. It's, it's really rough. Yeah, it's a bit rough. Also, another do not is do not drink it on an empty stomach. So, it's not an appetizer. It's always an after-dinner drink. Well, It is technically an appetizer, but you shouldn't start on an empty stomach. You should enjoy it at the same time with a selection of mezes. So, there we go. Lots of crazy things. We also visited a natural winery on the island of Lipsy, Dimitri's Farm, which was a lot of fun heading out there and trying some of their natural wines that are made in a very traditional way. Wonderful place. And they're 70% self-supporting, which is absolutely insane. Yeah, they grow most of their own fruit and veg. They're rearing animals out there, so it's like a farm winery. Cutest little kittens you've ever seen in your life. Kittens everywhere. Dimitri's giving them away to anyone or steal one away in their backpack. (laughs) 
I almost took one. They have so many kittens, they just don't know what to do with them. I would be happy to adopt a kitten. Yeah. Unfortunately, customs don't like us carrying cats everywhere we go. But so yeah, lots of really cool and fun things on our Sun Fun U voyage. As we said at the start, it really was one of the best vacation experiences. And People sometimes say to us, like, you're so positive about things. Like, you think everything's great. It's like, no, we only talk about things that we think are great. If we think something's rubbish, we just don't mention it. So there are lots of things that didn't make it into this podcast because we went, well, that food wasn't so good. But the food that we've talked about has been fantastic. Exactly. That's why we're talking about it. I mean, no one's tuning in to hear what not to eat in (laughs) Greece episode. That's just going to be, that's a downer. Let's be positive about the world of cuisine. Just eat what we tell you to eat and then you'll be fine. We won't need to do what not to eat episodes. Eat the stuff that's great. Talk about the stuff that's great. And don't worry about complaining about the stuff that's not great. Because, you know, whatever. Who cares? Uh, Let's not talk about that. Move on. Exactly. Although I have to point out that actually everything on the voyage was absolutely fantastic. The food cooked on the ship was we're, great. We're more saying some of the stuff that we had. Off ship. Off ship in some of the touristy restaurants were not as good. The ship food was sensational from beginning to end. Yeah, we were very happy with that. But I think the number one takeaway was just the way that it was such a voyage of balance, as well as all of the foodie activities and all the amazing food that the captain cooked, the the crazy times we had with all the people we met, the amazing swimming, hiking. There was also a yoga instructor on board. So it was just everything all at once. It made you feel like you could indulge, but still be healthy at the end of it all and rejuvenated. Yeah, I want to do it. As I said before, I want to do it again and again and again. I came off feeling better in mind, body and soul than I have felt in quite a while. Because it just, you know, for people like us, it just ticked all the boxes that we needed. It wasn't some hardcore yogi retreat where everyone was a vegan and have been doing yoga on their head since they were three. It was, you know, people just enjoying doing yoga because they enjoy the stretches and they enjoy yoga and people who enjoy drinking were having a good time drinking and playing backgammon and doing that and everyone just embraced everyone else's loves and everyone else's space but also some really good conversations happened it oh it's i can just i could gush forever and as we said we genuinely feel like it's one of the best experiences we've ever done for a vacation and that's why we actually want to do it again Next time, we want to do it, though, with you guys. We want to take some of you guys on this trip so that you can experience what we experienced and even maybe a little bit beyond in the food thing, like a few extra food stops that we really loved, that we found, that we want to add to the trip uh, to make it even better. Yeah, we want to just put the feelers out there for a Sun Fun New meets Food Fun travel experience and see who would be interested in hanging out with us on this gullet, experiencing all of these things plus more for a week. So, yeah, if you've got some free time in September 2019 and you would like to go on a a life-changing voyage through the Greek islands with all the beauty, the balance and the incredible food and hang out with us and we can talk to you about all of our food adventures around the world through 91 countries at time of recording. It's going to be more than that by the time you see us next year. Hell yeah, Will! Then just send us an email at megzi at foodfuntravel.com and just let us know that you're interested. Uh, of course, be aware this is an all-inclusive voyage. They're paying for all the food. You've got unlimited drinks on the boat as well. That includes the yoga Everything's instructor. Covered. Uh, Room is covered. 
daily yeah. cleaning of your room. The Tour only guide. thing is uh, gratuities at the end. But you know what? You're going to be happy to just be like piling out the cash because the crew is fantastic and absolutely deserve every cent of tips. Yeah. So, it's a really nice standard of voyage where you're really looked after and everything is paid for. So, it's not a super cheap. It's not a budget activity. If you want to go on a $500 island hopping voyage, you're looking at the wrong place. You'll probably be looking at at least $3,000 US per person. Uh, if you want a single cabin, there'll be a supplement for that as well. So if you are genuinely interested and you feel like you have that amount of cash to spend on a dream vacation, which I, it's worth more than that. I think the prices will go up at some point in the future because it really is worth more than that. It's such a perfect voyage with so much, so much to talk about. We barely even talked about everything. We just mentioned some of the highlights, but there was so much more to the, the trip. Uh, so, yeah, if that's something you think you can afford and that you're genuinely interested in and you want to talk food and fun with us and really just have a party and play lots of backgammon, then contact us, megzy at foodfuntravel.com. Just let us know you're interested and then we can start talking with the company and seeing if it's realistic to get us all on the boat for a week. All we need is 10 people. Yep. All we need is 10 people plus us and we can get everyone on a food fun travel voyage with sunfunyou.com. Uh, it's going to be amazing and show notes for this podcast as well as more info on getting on the voyage for yourself and about the food we've been talking about are at foodfuntravel.com slash greek islands podcast greek islands with an s podcast um, also if you want to go on the voyage but not with us then just head over to sunfunyou.com for more info about booking a place in 2019 we are currently trying to organize a discount for our readers listeners and followers so we haven't fixed that up yet, but do mention that you found Sun Fun You through us at Food Fun Travel or the Dish Podcast. And then if we have managed to get a discount, then you will be eligible for that. And once again, if you do want to hang out with us, email us at megsy at foodfuntravel.com to let us know if you have any initial interest in joining us for a Food Fun Travel voyage in September 2019 or maybe even 2020, you know, we might want to go every year. It is that awesome. So just let us know when you might be interested just so we can get a list of people together who might want to take the voyage. That's it for this episode. Just a quick mention at the end, of course, if you want to help us out with our podcast and support us, you can do that on our Podbean Patreon account at foodfuntravel.com slash extras. That will help pay for my Euros tonight. Yes. I have a Euros addiction. Actually, I have a cheese addiction. I have a Saganaki addiction. They cost uh, from anywhere from about five, around about five euros per one. So, a little bit less. If, if you want to indulge me and buy me a Saganaki cheese, <laughs> please subscribe to our Patreon account and you can help me have all the cheese in the world and keep me a very happy lady. And you'll also get access to bonus episodes. We've put out some cool little episodes about Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco sauce. There's more coming soon. Hey, it's more interesting than you would expect. It I had is. no idea about some of the background information. There's going to be more episodes going in there. So more of us talking about food. If you've enjoyed this podcast, also make sure you go over to iTunes and subscribe. Rate and review. Rate and review on whatever channel you listen. Five stars, please. Anything less than five stars, you are listening to the wrong podcast. Go find another podcast. If you made it this far through and you don't think it's worth five stars, definitely never listen to us again. I don't think, why would you be listening to us still at this point? It's like way over an hour. What are you doing? So five <laughs> stars or just don't bother leaving us a review. Oh, How about that? Or That's just email me and tell me why. why. Yeah. 
That'd be, yeah, just email me rather than leave a review there. Just email me. And then, you know, it can be like, oh, that your voice is really annoying. Yeah, I can't help that. (laughs) Once again, listen to someone else with a voice that you (laughs) like. How about that? Easy, right? (laughs) But if it's something that we can change, we will certainly do our best. So, foodfuntravel.com slash extras if you want to support us as a patron. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode, which will, well, maybe it's already out. Who knows? Depends when you're listening to this. There'll be more food and fun travel talk going on next time. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.